Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. I couldn't find any volunteers for that one. <laughs> oh, well, good morning. Let me set up my stuff here so we don't get lost. So last Sunday, I left with my family to go to Disney World. And I arrived back from Disney World late last night. And so just imagine this whole time, me with Mickey ears on as I try to reckon with this genealogy with you here this morning. Uh, while I was at Disney, I have two daughters, a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old. And those daughters are really familiar with the newer Disney princesses. And so like Anna and Elsa and Moana and Tangled and all that stuff. And I know way too much about that stuff. Um, but they're not as familiar with some of the older Disney characters. I mean, they recognize them. They, they know the one in the blue is Cinderella. The one in the pink is Aurora, Sleeping Beauty, right? And at, while we were at Disney World this entire week, I was constantly telling backstory. Like, wait, so this is Cinderella's castle? Yeah, and it's huge and amazing. Did, wait, okay, so tell me about Cinderella, because they didn't really care that much about Cinderella until they saw that she had a massive, beautiful castle, 
right? And once they had entered into the kingdom, the magic kingdom, they were very interested. It's almost like instinct. Like, wait, tell me more about this. Why, why is this, even like Br'er Rabbit and, you know, Splash Mountain. And like, wait, who is this? this is a, I didn't realize this was a story. So I found myself constantly telling backstories the entire time I was there. And that's basically what we're doing in this series that I started last month. So once a month, I'm going to um, do Matthew's use of the Hebrew Bible, the whole, his Bible, the old, what we call the Old Testament. Um, and as John is going through Matthew uh, on every other Sunday, uh, I'm, I'm going to be coming in once a month, coming back around and looking at the, oh, how he uses his, how Matthew uses his Bible. So I have, am, am very used to, at this point, backstories telling, just from this past week at Disney World. Um, there, I could not tell you the genealogy of, of most of the Disney characters, though, which is what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 1. And I highly recommend that you um, have a Bible in front of you if you can, um, because there's just a lot of stuff here to look at. And the first service, I'm just going to give you a warning, the first service I went a little long. And we kind of ran up against our Bible study that we do in between. Um, but this service, we don't have a Bible study, so we can go all day, I figure. So no, no, no worries. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it brief. Um, but there's some important things in a genealogy. Um, in this particular genealogy that I think we should, we should spend time on and do a little backstory. I told you uh, last time that there's barely a paragraph in Matthew that doesn't reference the Old Testament or, the, or his Bible. Uh, we talked this morning at Bible study about how sometimes the use of Old Testament kind of relegates it to something. Um, it's often called the First Testament um, as, as well as another way of, of, of referring to it. Or, as I mentioned last time, Jesus' Bible kind of adds a little bit of weight to it. The Bible that Jesus had uh, is what we call the Old Testament. It has not been relegated, um, as, we, as we shall see. But... Um, this, this idea that Matthew is constantly referring to the Old Testament, and I mean constantly referring to the Old Testament, while he's painting his portrait of Jesus, his color palette in his left hand, what he's painting with his right hand, are the colors of the Old Testament. Okay, And so when he's painting his portrait of Jesus in this gospel, he's using the colors of the Old Testament. And the more familiar we are, with, with the Old Testament, the, the, rich, the more of the richness we'll see of his portrait of Jesus. And so, last time, if you remember, we were in Matthew 1, 1, the first sentence of the New Testament. And we talked about how Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham. And we mentioned, that, well, why is Matthew, who is going to pull out a pen and paper and, and tell the world about who Jesus is, why does he start? Why does the very first thing we need to know, why is it that it's, it's the son of David, the son of Abraham? And we mentioned last time that it was because of the covenants with those men in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham, if you remember, was given this covenant that through him, somehow, 
some way, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be brought into God's presence for blessing. If you remember, Abraham follows right after the Tower of Babel, where all the families of the earth are scattered and confused, away from God's presence, as, they, as we moved out of Eden and down the mountain of God and off on our own, he eventually, there was a scattering judgment at Babel, but he doesn't just end it there. He doesn't just say, that's it, I'm done. He also doesn't just say, forget all the rest of you, I'll pick you and I'll follow your family and then we'll all gather up and go to heaven one day. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm picking you to pull all them, draw all them back into, into my presence for blessing. And so that's your descendant is coming and he will do that. So when Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he's telling us that Jesus is the, the person who that, in whom that will be fulfilled, that promise. But he's also the son of David. So one of Abraham's sons down the, down the line is finally becomes a king. And he becomes a, a paradigmatic king. He becomes a king that's a model king that all the good kings are modeled after, David. And David is given a promise that, his, that he will have a son and his throne will be established forever and ever. That Yahweh himself, the God of, of the Bible, the God of creation, that Yahweh himself will establish the throne of David's son forever and ever and he will exercise all authority. So right out the gate, Matthew comes blasting some theological lightning bolts that this person I'm about to tell you about, Jesus, the Messiah, he is the everlasting king who reigns and rules forever and ever and has all authority over all the nations and all the heavens and all the earth. And he's bringing all the families of the earth into God's presence for blessing. So whatever you need to know about Jesus, know at least that. And that is massive. And then he proceeds into a genealogy. And so this is the part where we are like, okay, skip, 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 blah, 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 name, name, name. Okay, cool. The birth of Jesus in verse 18. I know this story. I love this one. And then we go. But we're not going to do that. Well, we're going to do some of that because I'm not going to cover everybody's name in here. It would be, we really would be here all day. But we're going to stop and we're going to pause and we're going to look at why is Matthew giving us a genealogy in the first place? Why does Matthew choose this literary historical device called a genealogy? You, you're, we're ready for Matthew to like, he, he, already, he already brought this, these theological bombs and now we're like, oh, now buzzkill genealogy. Let's get to the birth story with, the, with Mary and Joseph and all that stuff. That's, but we're going to see hopefully this morning, he's still bringing it. The, uh, uh, this genealogy is not just a historical device. It's a theological device. It has theological ends. Matthew is using, he's crafting this, gene, this genealogy to tell us something about God. And about what God is doing. And who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, um, you have genealogies. 
Almost all the genealogies, there's a few scattered about, but almost all of them are in Genesis and Chronicles. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Bible that Jesus carried around, that Matthew had, of course, none of them carried around anything because they were massive scrolls. But if you go to the synagogue and you, you open up the scroll, the first book would be Genesis. And the last book of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Chronicles. All the 12 prophets, like Malachi, if you look in your Bible right now, you'll see Malachi is the last. Those are backed up into a section called the prophets. So in the first, I'll do it your way, in the first, you have the Torah, the first section, the first five books, the Torah. Then you have another section called the prophets, and then you have another section called the writings, okay? So the law, the prophets, and the writings. You may have heard that because Jesus refers to it all the time. Sometimes it'll be the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or sometimes it'll be the law and the prophets, and then everything is captured up in that. But it's important to note that the last book of Matthew's Bible was Chronicles. And Chronicles is just littered with genealogies. And in fact, Matthew has referenced and used Chronicles as a source. And so is Genesis. Genesis is also littered with with genealogies. But what Matthew is doing, even by choosing to to do a genealogy at this point, he's taking this literary device called a genealogy and he's using it as a stitch to stitch in his book into the Old Testament onto the Old Testament. So you have the Old Testament and then Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And what he does is in his story of Jesus he he takes this genealogy and he stitches it onto the last book, Chronicles with a genealogy. It's what you would expect if you were reading Chronicles and then you read right into Matthew. Boom! Here it is. It's all being fulfilled. And Chronicles itself is a chronicle of the Israelite history. And what's interesting about Chronicles, side note, is that if you've read Samuel and then you read Chronicles, in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible it's just Samuel and Chronicles. We break it up into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. But if you read Samuel and you read Chronicles, it doesn't take long to realize, wait a minute, I've, when you're reading Chronicles, you're like, I've already read this because he's, it's so much of what's in Samuel. But the difference is, is that Samuel was written before the exile and Chronicles was written after the exile, after they're returning. If you remember, they return with Nehemiah and Ezra. There's Chronicles. And what's interesting is the promise to David and David the character of David the figure of David in the chronicles I think I mentioned this last time I can't remember but he's kind of cleaned up a little bit from Samuel like the Bathsheba story which is terrible right that's not in chronicles even though it's telling the same story it just leaves it out and this 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 Davidic hope is built up in chronicles And it's interesting because the Davidic line has been lost in the exile. So that the kings that followed David's line in Judah were finally cut off. And they were cut off, they're still cut off at at Jesus' time. The king, remember we talked about King Herod is not a Davidic. He's not from the line of David. He's not a Davidic king. So this promise that God had made to David, who, who, 
it becomes this big anticipation in the Jewish people. When is the Davidic son going to come? How is it going to happen? So when you look at this genealogy and you see that Matthew has done a genealogy as a way of like stitching his letter onto the Old Testament as a fulfillment. And then you look at the structure of, the book, of, of this genealogy from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. He says in the end of this genealogy in uh, verse 17 that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the exile, the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, that's interesting. 14, four, well, that, wow, what, what a coincidence. What an interesting piece of, of history. Can, now, can we go to the birth of Jesus with Mary and Joseph and all that stuff? No, we can't. Matthew is doing something intentional here. And it's hard to see at first, but I'm, I'm hopefully going to help you see some of what Matthew is doing here with this 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. If you went and you did your homework and you went back to Chronicles and to Genesis and you, and you, you compared Matthew, okay, here's Matthew's genealogy and here's Chronicles, okay, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, right? You just did that? you would eventually see that there are people in Chronicles that are not in Matthew. That he has intentionally left a couple folks out. And he did that because he wanted to make the point of 14 generations. 14 generations. 14 generations. Well, okay, Matthew, we got it. 14 generations. Why? Why are you doing this? And it's a simple point, I think, um, that, that's, that would have been obvious to the initial reader, but it's hard for us to see in English. There is a, another literary device called gematria, which you don't need to remember that, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's that there in the ancient Hebrew letters, there are no numbers. So every, if you wanted to put a number up on the board, you'd write a letter because the letters stood for numbers, Okay. So they didn't have vowels, they only had consonants, they didn't have numbers, they just used those consonants for everything. And Greek does the same thing. But if the way you figure out what numbers mean things is like Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, Aleph Bet, uh, is number one. And then Bet is number two. Gimel is number three. Dalit is number four. And so on and so forth, right? And so you would know that what, what, letter, what letter represented what number. So when you see 14, all, this is, I'm making this long. I'm going to make it short. Dalit, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit is four. Hey, Vav is six. And then Dalit again is number four. So if you had Dalit, Vav, Dalit, you would have DVD, which you would have David. David, okay, that's how you spell David's name. And if you added, okay, four plus six plus four, right? 
then you would come up with the number 14, right? And so here is a way that Matthew is basically, at this point, he's exhausting all literary means to communicate that Jesus is the son of David. 14, 14, 14, David, David, David. There's a lot of kings in this list, but David is the only one called the king. David the king in verse 6. Solomon was a king. He's not, he's not referred to as a king. Rehoboam was a king. He's not referred to as a king. And so on and so forth down that list. They're all kings up to Babylon, but they're not mentioned as kings. Only David is mentioned as a king. Theologically, it is of prime importance to Matthew that we see Jesus as the Davidic king. Because the hope of the Old Testament, which is the hope of the world, is bound up in the coming Davidic king. And Matthew is saying in every possible way that he can think of to tell us that this person, Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David. Even down when we get into the Christmas story, in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, it's important that even Joseph's dad is, comes from the line of David. And when you go to Luke's genealogy, he makes sure that Mary's from the line of David. There's no getting around it. Joseph's, Joseph's adopted dad is from the line of David. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus' adopted dad is from the line of David. And his mother is from the line of David. Jesus is the son of David. And when, when we are done with the Sermon on the Mount... And Jesus comes walking down that mountain. You're going to see people that are going to be healed. And they're going to constantly refer to Jesus as the, is, wait, is this the son of David? It's, it's of prime importance to Matthew that we realize that Jesus is the Davidic king. Because the hope of the world is bound up in the coming Davidic king. In this genealogy, uh, we will see a couple of of. Um, interesting tidbits. I'm not going to mention all of them, but I do just want to mention a couple. Um, you'll notice that obviously this is a, a genealogy of Jewish people, right? Abraham's the beginning. Jesus is at the end, right? Well, there's four women mentioned in this, in this genealogy, which is very, very, very uncommon in the ancient world to put women in the ancient genealogies. And it's interesting to note, you may have noticed, that none of these women are Jewish. They're all Gentiles. In fact, they're the only Gentiles in the genealogies, or in the genealogy. So in Matthew's genealogy, he includes women to say, to show that, that the inclusion of the Gentiles has always been, it's part of who Jesus is. He brings in the outsider, his very lineage, the very makeup of who he is includes the Jews and the Gentiles. He brings in the Gentile and the outsider. And I think the use of women to do that is, is Matthew's way of like changing the font so that you would see that they're Gentiles. If you could imagine the, the list, and, and if, he, if he could highlight Gentiles, 
he would do it, but he can't. So he, include, he, he, he shows them as the women that, in, in the genealogy. So he brings out the women. Because I mean, he could have mentioned all kinds of the matriarchs of the faith. He could have mentioned Sarai and Rachel, um, Rebecca, but he doesn't. He mentions the, only, he, the Gentiles uh, as the women. I, one more thing I want to mention here is, you, you see this phrase in verse 2 where he says, Judah and his brothers? That's interesting, right? So my point here is that when we look through these genealogies, look for, look for patterns. Look for when you're reading this word that, um, as we read uh, earlier in Paul, that all scripture is breathed out and it's good for you. That includes the genealogies. That when we're reading this, how can I read this? How can I see what's going on here? Well, look for the things that are immediately interesting, like the women. Whoa, okay. Is there anything common about these women? Oh, yeah. They're the only Gentiles. They're all Gentiles, and they're the only Gentiles, right? What about David? Oh, he's called the king. No one else is called the king. So, the, so David is, is an interesting character here. Another thing is this and his brothers. It only shows up twice. And it's a way, if you see it in verse 2, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. If you remember, Judah was, had 11 brothers. And these were the 12 patriarchs, or the, the, the 12 sons of Jacob. I should say, the 12 tribes. And they sold one of their brothers into slavery. Maybe you've heard this story in Egypt. And there's a famine in the land, and then... Uh, they come into, the whole people of Israel have to come into Egypt where they eventually become slaves. And so they're not in the promised land that they were promised through the promise to Abraham. They're in slavery and bondage in Egypt. So this and his brothers is this shorthand for entering into exile and needing an exodus. Well, the next place we see and his brothers is in verse 11 all the way down to where Jeconiah and his brothers. Well, when was that? That was at the time of the deportation to Babylon. It was an exile needing an exodus. Well, we don't get an exodus from the exile. Many first century Jewish people considered themselves still in exile even though some of them had come back and re-inhabited the land, as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. But this ongoing exile, um, this, the, the land, is, they never have the land on their own. They're always occupied by the Greeks and the Persians and the, and the Romans at this point. And they never, like I said, their Davidic king is never established. Herod is a puppet king who's just in it for the power and the fame and the prestige. And he's evil. But this point of, there is no exodus yet. There is no exile. Or there's no end of exile. But how does the, if we move from Abraham to David, David to exile, exile to Jesus, who is called the Christ, the King, 
He is, what Matthew is showing us here is he is the exile ender. He is the God of the exodus. He's the one who's, who this, this Babylonian exile that it's, and this exile of the, of the people of God out of, of his presence, he's the one who's ending it. So already, before we even get to the birth of Jesus in verse 18, we've seen that Jesus is the Messiah who is this everlasting king who reigns forever and ever and has all authority, who is bringing the nations in to God's presence for blessing by ending the exile, the great exile out of Eden. He is ending. So Matthew has crafted this genealogy in this letter so far to, to pack just a ma- massive theological punches. And I think that, like, the, the, so what do we do, right? What, what, where's the application, right? Well, I think application is, screams out of this and on many levels. But I think the main application is that, and I think this is Matthew's overall application for why he wrote his, his book, is that we have to reckon with this king. We have to reckon with this person. He is, Matthew himself, we saw last time, is fulfilling that final command of his great king to go and tell the nations, go and tell the world. We have to reckon with the exile ender. We have to come in to God's presence through him for blessing. We need to pledge allegiance to him as the king of heaven and earth. He's not our buddy. He's not, I'm not, I mean, he's obviously, he calls us friend. But I'm just saying, it's not some casual thing, right? Christianity is like, it's like really easy to be casual in our society. But it, it looks like it's getting less and less so if you're just paying attention, you know. But there are, there are places, and it may become that way here, where it will, not, it will be casually easy to not be a Christian, way, way easier, way more culturally beneficial to not follow the exile, and to remain in exile, to remain outside of God's presence for blessing, and to pledge allegiance to another king who only offers destruction. So the call here for us is easy. We have, we have to reckon with the fact that we live in a comfortable society where we can, I go to church, won't go to church. I'll follow Jesus here, won't do it here. I'll plug my kids into this. I know they won't be plugged into this, but I'm going to plug them into this for whatever, because the culture says so, or because it's fun, or whatever. The calling is high. We have to reckon with Jesus And it is for our own sake and for the sake of his glory. When I leave here today, I'm going to drive home. By the way, I woke up this morning really early because I live in Mount Pleasant. And I I realized that I didn't really say any words until I started preaching (laughs) out loud. 
I think I talked to John back here for like two seconds. That was like the first words I said. And uh, I'm going to go home. I, I left them. My family was sleeping when I left. And I'm going to watch Peter Pan because my daughter really wants to watch Peter Pan because she loved the ride, the Peter Pan ride. And um, she wants, she's craving the backstory. She wants to know, well, wait, wait a minute, that was really cool. I, can we watch that? Of course we can watch it. Shame on me for, that we haven't watched it yet, right? It's important that we, that we as we enter into the kingdom of, of Jesus, that, that we go and we meditate, as the psalm said this morning, on the divine wisdom and instruction of the Bible, day and night. We will flourish like trees planted by water, bearing fruit. We will not if we don't. So, Matthew is calling us to, to, to partake in the Old Testament because when we become familiarized, familiarized, from, I forget it, you know what I'm saying, I can't, I can't even talk right now. When we become familiar with those colors, we will see the richness of the portrait of the king that he is painting. Let me leave you with this as we enter into communion. Jesus was a man. Maybe that's the most obvious thing here. Jesus was a man. The Christ, the son of David, the exile ender, the king who reigns forever, who brings all the families of the earth in for blessing, became a man. Here's his lineage right here. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth. This is Paul yearning for his own countrymen, the Israelites, to come to Jesus. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit that my grief is great and there is constant distress in my heart. For I could wish myself to be accursed from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my fellow countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, to whom belong the patriarchs and from whom is the Christ according to human descent. Who is God over all blessed forever? Paul knew this genealogy. Paul knew the realities that we have learned here this morning and this idea of God becoming incarnate. As we enter into Holy Communion, remember that Jesus entered into our world as a human and that when we partake of the wine and the bread, we are, taking, we are partaking in the blood and the body of the high king of heaven and earth who died, who gave up his body, who shed his blood for, for us so that the exodus may come. He was the Passover lamb. So that the nations may be brought into the presence of God for blessing. But he has ascended from the dead. He's risen from the dead and ascended to the throne and reigns at the right hand of God right now. He's in our midst now as king. 
Let's pledge allegiance to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Wonderful are your deeds. Father, we pray that your will would be done. That the commands of King Jesus would be heeded. That your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, as we partake in this bread and this wine, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, stir up in us a gratitude for your provision, for the forgiveness of sins. I pray that you would empower us to be the kind of people who forgive the sins of those who trespass against us. Father, we know that King Jesus is a conquering king who put death to death, who laid death in his grave. I pray that he would keep us from the evil one, from temptation, that we would continue faithful to our great king, loyal, and to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit belong the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.